You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, as you can see, there is a lot going on in the church because we fervently, legitimately, authentically, and sincerely believe that the church, as the new covenant community of the Spirit, is to be diligent in being the new covenant community of the Spirit. So there are a lot of things that are happening, and I am delighted to get to be a part of that and to, to see all the hustle and the bustle of ministry happening and people doing life together. My name is Eric Barton, and I'm the downtown campus pastor here at Bethel, and I am delighted that you're here. We are convinced that it is no accident that you are here, that there is something that God, the greatest communicator in the cosmos, is desperately wanting to speak to your soul about this morning. I don't know what that is, but I've been praying, and as I have been preparing, asking God, would you speak to these, your people? And so that's my expectation, is that God would sound forth via his word. And as I said, my name is Eric Barton. That last name, Barton, it, uh, it means something. We think the earliest ancestor we can legitimately trace in the Barton line that is from my family background is a guy named David Barton, who some 800 years ago lived in England. And I've always thought, man, I bet that guy, David Barton, hmm, I bet that guy had a hard life. And no, not because he was in England, and no, not because it was 800 years ago, but because he's a Barton. And I'll just tell you, I come from a long line of losers. And I've always wondered, is that the guy? Is that the guy that started it all? Is that the guy that I get this genetic tendency to be bad at pretty much everything? Like, I wonder if that's the guy who's sitting around in medieval England, said, you know what, I think I'm going to develop our family crest. And I'm going to make our family crest, and it's going to be really indicative of who we are as a family, as a clan, as a tribe. And I bet it looked like this. Yeah. And so for 800 years, that's, that's pretty much been us. Everything is hard. Like, I, I feel like sometimes my spiritual gift is messing up. Like, like if it, all of it was required to win the lottery was falling down, I would somehow float. Like, how is that even possible? And sometimes life can sort of feel that way. Where everything is hard, it feels like life is always uphill and into the wind. And when we start to ask ourselves, even in counseling contexts, why is everything so hard? And our anxieties build, perhaps even spiraling into deep pathological concerns that manifest themselves in depression. And we even see this among the people of God. And sometimes we can even begin to have these thoughts like, well, I think I'm a believer, but my goodness, this world is hard and it keeps getting harder and I'm experiencing loss and fear and uncertainty and doubt and pain and what's the deal? I thought that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God who, who comes as the lamb of God to take a, away the sin of the world, but man, it's sure feels sinful right now. It sure feels like there's, like there's hardship and pain, and it's just not quite meeting up. Well, I want you to know that 
Anger is a blocked goal. Frustration is an expectation not met. Our Bibles are reading us every bit as much as we are reading them. And our Bibles are telling us something about ourselves, God communicating as the maker to the maid to show us this is what happens. We set for ourselves all these kinds of expectations, and when they're blocked, when our goals are failing to manifest, we get angry. Maybe you know this as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a student, as a neighbor, as a coworker, as a boss, and you just get so mad. What a tragedy when even the people of God are characterized and demonstrated as an angry group of people. We've been in a fall semester series that we started last week in the book of Matthew chapter 13, and Jesus telling stories is going to tell us a very profound truth in a set of three little parables. And his big idea for this little three set of parables is, <laughs> in this world, we will have trouble. In this world, we will have trouble. And so set your expectations accordingly. But praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. We're going to read some Jesus stories to see what are we to do in view of this truth. In this world, we will have trouble. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, these are the stories of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew records five separate sermons or discourses or speeches in the book of Matthew. Because Matthew, as a gospel writer, is trying to tell us that the rightful king has landed. Oh, I know it's not what you expected. He didn't look like you thought he would look. He didn't come to, to shake off the oppression of Rome. He didn't descend in a battleship. But he is the rightful king. He is the rightful heir of the line of David. Even the genealogies tell us this. Matthew's going to record five different speeches to help us understand that this is the rightful king, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. The first speech comes in the Sermon on the Mount. That's sort of the, the philosophy, the ethic of the kingdom. The second speech comes in Matthew chapter 10. That's the little commission the going out, the sending of the disciples. The middle discourse is Matthew 13, the seven kingdom parables, the kingdom of heaven is like. The fourth discourse is Matthew 18, describing what the church is going to be about. And then the final discourse is Matthew 24 and 25. That's the Olivet Discourse, describing the judgment that will come at the end of the age. But right here in the middle, we get these seven kingdom parables as Jesus gives this lengthy speech. I'm going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Last week, we talked about the parable of the four soils. Those soils represent the condition of our heart, how we receive the seed that is, in that parable, in that story, the message about the coming kingdom. So now we go on to the second, third, and fourth parables, beginning in verse 24. Matthew writes that he, Jesus, put another parable before them. That's one big, long, complicated, funky word. He served it up. He set it down in front of them. This is teacher language. I want you to just sort of see this happen in your mind. Here's Jesus sitting in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. The people are standing along the, the, the shore of the lake, and he just sort of serves up a story, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. All of these parables are 
the kingdom of heaven is like, or it may be compared to. These are stories. Para bole, to throw para along, bole alongside. Para, that's where we get our word for parallel. To throw it alongside. It's a story that depicts a concrete reality to demonstrate a cosmic truth. It depicts a concrete reality to demonstrate a cosmic truth. It's a story that they all would understand, be familiar with, and recognize. It's very possible as Jesus sits there in this little boat, all these people are standing around him, that there's a guy way up on the hillside who literally is reaching into his pouch and is broadcasting seed. And everybody would have been familiar with that in an agrarian agricultural society. Jesus is taking that which is near and handy and understandable and using it to define a broader cosmic truth and a principle. So he says, he sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Underline the question of verse 27. That's the key to the parable. Verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is God's word. Matthew records the words of Jesus to tell us that the kingdom has come but it isn't what we expected. See, Matthew's going to write and tell us that the rightful Messiah has arrived. This kingdom, it is proclaimed, it is offered. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, he brings in, he ushers the kingdom. But even he didn't quite understand. He didn't quite get it even. His expectations were not fully met. That kingdom is authenticated by this Messiah. He does signs and wonders and miracles. Usually in that day and age, a person who professed to be the Messiah would do a couple signs or of wonders, allegedly, always in secret, attested to by one or two witnesses. Not this Jesus. Man, he walks around and dead people get up. Sick people are well. Blind people can see. Deaf people can hear. Demons are banished over and over and over again, attested to by hundreds. His kingdom is authenticated, even though it's not what we expected. The kingdom is previewed. What does the ethic and the philosophy of the kingdom look like? Well, it's the Sermon on the Mount, and we realize, oh man, we could never do that on our own. We need someone to impart it to us. Jesus says, that's the deal. You're exactly right. But then the kingdom is debated. The leaders of Israel say, no, 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 no. Our expectation is that the kingdom comes by force, by the power of what we can do, according to our strong right hand, what we can obtain, accomplish. And Jesus says, no. The kingdom doesn't come by doing. It comes by hearing. So be careful how you hear. They reject. And so Jesus, essentially, at the end of chapter 12, withdraws and postpones the offer of the kingdom to Israel. Matthew picks that up, and he says, ah, and so now Jesus is taking that offer of the kingdom to all of the world. To all of the world. The access and entrance into the kingdom of God comes via the gospel. The finished work of Christ. The good news. The awesome announcement 
of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. And so in chapter 13 now, the kingdom is going to be re-envisioned. Let me tell you how the kingdom is going to manifest itself in this age. It's sort of like this. It's sort of like that. It's sort of like this. It's sort of like that. And he tells seven stories to tell us how the kingdom of God in this age of grace, in this age of the church, is now going to be offered to all of the world, including those Romans who so darkly oppress you. And Jesus is going to say, your expectations are not going to be met. So by grace, I'm giving you the opportunity to rethink your thinking. This is repentance, to reset your expectations, to reorganize your goals. Let's walk back through this very briefly. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. This man is the owner of the field. And yet again, there's broadcast declaration. There is sort of a, a, a wide dispersion of this field that is, or this seed that's being sown in his field. But while his men were sleeping, no commentary about whether that's good or bad. That's not the point. Remember, a parable is only answering the question that a parable is trying to answer. It's not providing a whole lot of other insight into, whoa, so sleep is evil. You should never do that's not the point. It's not the point at all. The question comes from chapter 12 that says, what happens to the kingdom now? Jesus says, I'll tell you seven stories about that. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. This is zizania, these weeds. Uh, it's, uh, it's not an accidental term. These first seeds were planted intentionally by design, and then afterward, an enemy comes, and he intentionally, deliberately, cleverly sows a different kind of seed, but it's very, very clever. This zizania is actually sort of a mutated version of wheat. It looks almost identical. You really can't tell them apart. In fact, I have a picture of this. Sometimes we'll say tares. Your Bible might say dardanelle. It's zizania. And it looks just like wheat. The only difference, the only difference is that the, the zizania does not produce fruit. The stalk is the same. The head on top of the stalk is the same. The only way you can tell the difference is at harvest time. In the meantime, you can't tell. This enemy is very clever. He sows something that is very difficult to discern. This is what Jesus is telling us this. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. The root system of Zizania intertwines underneath the soil and gets intertangled with the wheat, the good plants, and begins to vie and suck resources and nutrients away from the wheat. This enemy is very clever, and it gets mixed in so that it's very hard to separate, and the bad looks like the good sometimes, and the good looks like the bad sometimes, and it's very difficult to tell which is which. And so, verse 27, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? This is not generally the question an employee asks an employer. Did you not know what you were doing? Are you grossly incompetent? Because look, there's bad stuff in the field that you planted. Notice, they understand that it is he who planted, not them. Did you not sow good seed? Verse 27. How then does it have weeds? Our expectation 
is that when you show up, it's all going to be good. Not going to be any bad. No problems, no disappointments, no frustrations, no heart sickness, no irritation, no frustration, no inconvenience. Did you, I'm sorry, Master. Did, look, did you not know what you were doing? Were you just asleep? That, did you not pay attention, Master? Hmm. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Oh, this is done with deliberate intent. So the servant said to him, I'll tell you what, we'll help you out. We'll go fix this for you. We will go and uh, we'll clean it out. Do you want us to go and gather them, the weeds? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. They're still concerned about trying to improve and better the environment, addressing the surface symptom. The, the physical issue when there is a spiritual, deeper matter at hand. No, that's not your job, he says. That's not your, that's not your position. Let both grow together until the harvest. And the, at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is letting us know about the world in which we live so that we can see it more clearly, have more precise understanding, and then cope with it all the better, that we will decide in advance how to see, hear, and experience our world. In our world as we live, there are two concurrent contemporary kingdoms. You have to know this. There is the kingdom that the Son of God himself has initiated and inaugurated. And he has begun the process of redeeming the world to himself. And at the same time comes an enemy who is trying to counterfeit and counter so with a very clever deception. There are two kingdoms side by side. And if you think there's not a kingdom of darkness, you misunderstand. And if you think that his kingdom in this age completely obliterates already the kingdom of darkness, you have a missed expectation and you're going to be frustrated and even angry when things don't go your way. And things won't go your way. And then you will yell at your spouse with clenched teeth. You will tower over your children and frighten them with your strength and anger. You will go to your job and say horrible things to your employees or coworkers or boss. You will say mean, horrible things to your neighbor, the one who's weed eater. You broke in the first place. Your expectations will get out of whack and you will begin to lose your cool and not be a positive witness. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit. Jesus himself is going to interpret this parable for us. So fast forward to verse 34. Matthew writes this, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, talking to all of the crowds, not just the disciples. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. From this point forward, Jesus is only going to speak in stories like this. He's not going to do any more signs and wonders, no more proofs that he's the rightful king. That offer has been rejected. Now it's an offer of the gospel that is about to be offered. All of this, he said, was to speak to them in parables. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Well, the one that said, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This has always been the plan. This is from Psalm 78, verse 2. The psalmist Asaph, speaking as a prophet in the Psalms, Matthew says, aha, this is that. Jesus is doing what the psalmist Asaph did in the Old Testament, saying, this is the history of Israel. I will now speak in stories to tell them what's going to happen. Jesus is fulfilling, he's fulfilling the, the foreknowledge, the, the prophecy that came from Asaph the psalmist. And so verse 36, then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. I don't know which house it is. It doesn't really matter. It could be Jesus' own house. 
could be that of Peter, Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know. It's somewhere in Capernaum. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. <laughs> there it is. Jesus does not explain this parable to all of the crowds. Why? The crowds didn't ask. The disciples want to know more clearly, what does Jesus mean? Incidentally, that's one of the indicators that you are a disciple of Christ. You want to understand him more. You want to know his word more clearly, more aptly, more applicably. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You want to follow him and know where he's going and why he is going there. So Jesus, in a little bit of a surprise, he tells them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. <laughs> this is very intentionally an Old Testament title that Jesus uses here. It's not a son of men. This is the son of man. This is an Old Testament title for the Messiah. This is Daniel 7, Daniel 12. The son of man comes on the clouds and he approaches the ancient of days. And the ancient of days, Yahweh gives him the scroll and says, you are the one. You have dominion and authority and power and glory and conquest. Jesus says, and that's me. Even though I've got like this really old Montgomery Ward robe I'm wearing right now. It's not that special. See, it's not what you expected. You didn't read all the story. You read Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. You forgot to go to Isaiah 60. You read all that, but you forgot to go to Micah 4. It's not what you expected. In this life, we will have trouble. The sower of the seed is the son of man. Now, previously, in the, in the earlier parable, we're not told who the sower is because it's not really important to that story. In this one, it is. It is Jesus, the son of man, and he says he is the one who sows the seed, in verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He's the one that does it. Please notice, the seed does not sow itself. The seed cannot say, I believe I'll jump out this pouch right now and get in the ground. No seed can say that. It has to be sown by a sower. This is why Jesus uses a similar language in saying you must be born again. No baby chooses when to be born. That would be a weird conversation to have with one's unborn self. No, the sower sows that seed, verse 37. The field is the world. I'm going to say that again. The field is the world. Just for irritating effect, I'm going to say that again. The field is the world. And it is not the church. As I have heard preached and taught over and over again, oh, this is Jesus saying that you're always going to have bad folks in the church. And just let them be there because it's not your job to pull them out. Just, you're going to have folks that are heretics and wonky unbelievers. Just leave them there. In fact, that's what God wants. God wants his church to be full of unbelievers. In fact, that's a sign of the church that you really are a church is that you're full of unbelievers. Whoa! No. A gross misapplication of this passage. Let me read it again. Jesus is not being unclear. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And notice there is nothing else. The seeds in the previous parable was the message of the kingdom. Now the seeds are those who have received redemption, who are a part of the family of God. And the seeds of the evil are the weeds, are the sons of the evil one, descendants of whom? And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Well, that's pretty clear. If you are a Christian who believes in the existence of a real being called the devil, 
the now, apparently, according to the most recent surveys of evangelical Christianity, you are in the minority. Even people who self-assess as Christians, the minority of whom believe that Satan is a real being. I didn't say he was a human being, but a real person, an entity, a being. The lost world, of course, doesn't believe that there's a real enemy, but even now many professing Christians don't believe that there is a real enemy, which is a part of his clever scheme. The idea is that, well, there's just sort of this collective evil in the world that is just all the, the culmination and the combination of a bunch of bad people's bad ideas, which leads people to believe that's why we can fix this. If we all just lock arms, agree with one another, plant trees, make guacamole, eat quinoa, we'll all be fine. No, we, we will not. We, th no, there are the descendants of the devil that are volitionally, deliberately trying to countermand the kingdom of Christ. He continues with his interpretation. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. You see, every single age in the, in the scriptures, every single age in the Bible culminates with judgment. Every single time. End of the Garden of, of Eden, there's judgment. For Noah and the ark, there's judgment. Every age terminates in judgment. The previous one is no different. This age will conclude in judgment, and the instruments of that judgment, <laughs> it ain't us. It's angels. So I hear people praying all the time, oh God, would you send your angels? I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a bad barbecue you don't want to be a guest at. And let's be careful about praying for seeing angels because they're going to come serious, all right? The angels, whoo, they are the reapers. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Every instance of abuse and abandonment and assault and things that people do, say, speak, and think against one another, all of it will be removed, but not yet. It's not yet. Notice that there is a gap, there is a delay, there is a pause between the sowing of the seed and the end which shall be judgment and there is this interim time and it's going to be hard. Set your expectations accordingly. In this world we will have trouble. Verse 42 And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears let him hear. Jesus also now going back to uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, saying those who are the good seed, who are sons and daughters of the kingdom, they will shine at that time, at the end of this age. They will shine like the Son of Man himself because they are in the Son of Man. They will be like their Father, and that they will shine with glory and beauty. But not yet. Right now, we still get to coexist with this other contemporary kingdom of darkness. Now, that's the explanation of the parable. But cleverly, inspired by the Spirit of God, Matthew includes two other very quick, very familiar parables that we have to understand to really make sense of this whole thing. So now rewind, go back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in his branches. Now, is Jesus a terrible botanist? Doesn't he know that really and truly the orchid seed is smaller than the mustard seed? Come on, Jesus, I thought you were creator. It's not the point. 
Jesus is not trying to give us a lesson on botany. And yes, a mustard plant is not technically, according to our taxonomy of the plant kingdom, a tree. It is a large shrubbery or a bush or whatever you want to go with. I don't know. That's not the point. Jesus is not trying to rewrite our science books. It's not what he's going after. It is a saying that is common and very, very familiar to those days. It was a colloquialism that people in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago would say, it's as small as a mustard seed, because mustard seeds were very, very common. Orchid seeds were not. They may or may not have known about orchid seeds, but everyone knew to say, it's as, you know, small as a mustard seed. It's just the thing that you say. It's, it's what you say. You say, oh man, I am as hungry as a hostage, or I am as full as a tick, or I'm as dumb as a box of scissors. Whatever it is that you say, I don't know what you say, but it's an expression, okay? Jesus is taking this thing and he's reusing it for his purpose to say, small as a mustard seed, but then it grows really fast. And sometimes in unexpected, unanticipated ways that you don't control, that you don't measure, you don't manage. Just get out the way, here it goes. About 20 years ago, the Dallas Morning News did a story about a man from Dallas who went to Israel, brought back some mustard seeds, planted them in his backyard in Highland Park. <laughs> One year later, this thing is 26 feet tall. And the guy didn't know what to do with it. Like, ah! This thing grows really rapidly, but not in the way, not in the place that we sometimes expect. That's how the kingdom's going to happen in this age. He continues. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. We don't want to make too much of that parable. There's things that he doesn't explain. He doesn't tell us who the woman is. It doesn't matter. What kind of bowl was she using? Doesn't matter. Was she wearing an apron? Doesn't matter. Was she listening to Kenny G on her iPod? Doesn't matter. That stuff is, we're not told. We're told she takes a little tiny bit of leaven which is not a symbol for evil, not always, it's just an image that means something, into a whole bunch of flour, three measures of flour, that'll feed a hundred people. And that little tiny bit of leaven permeates and transforms silently and mysteriously, and you can't see it, measure it, manage it, quantify it, or sometimes even discern it. That's how the kingdom's going to grow and go in this age. It's unexpected. We will have trouble in this world. In this world, we will have trouble. It's not going to go as we expect. It's going to be hard. Everything is hard, but that does not mean we do not have hope because he's also told us how this story ends. So what are we to do with this? How do we apply this, make this matter in our lives in the midst of this contemporary kingdoms in which we live? Let me give you four quick points. Number one, this is Jesus's world we're all living in it. Everybody. Notice whose field it is. It belongs to the master, to the son of man. Both the wheat and the weeds are living in his world. It's not the church. It's not where you look to the side and go, oh boy, I wonder if that guy's a weed. Because that, you know what? That guy's looking at you wondering if you're a weed. It's not about the church. This is the world in which we live. Jesus is helping his created have therapy. All of us, wheat and weed live in his world. Why doesn't Jesus just come and blow it out by fire right now? You know why? Because he is not slow as some think, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish. And yes, there are those that have been sown by the enemy to countermand and counterfeit his kingdom, but Jesus is not threatened. He's also in the business of taking weeds like me 
and transforming them into wheat that produce a bounty of crop. Wow, it's not what we expect. We expect the smiting stone of Daniel 2 to crush and destroy. No, he is patient. The servants say, hey, let's go in there and clear all that stuff out. Easy, easy. What if you had been cleaned out? So we pray for those that are all living in Jesus' world that he will do for them what he has done for us. We do not try to root them out ourselves. That would cause irreparable damage. And if you're sitting here thinking, gosh, I, it's his world and I'm living in it, but I don't, I don't really know if I'm a weed or I'm a wheat. The very fact that you have that concern is evidence that there is a flicker and a spark of wanting to be experiencing life with God, fellowship with the Father for eternity. We want to encourage you to follow that through spend time with a church, if not this one, then a church that will lead you in that growing relationship with Jesus. And if you are here and you think, man, I don't even know how I got here. I thought I smelled chicken somewhere downstairs and I came on up and now you're talking about all this old, out-of-date mythology. I'm way more enlightened and brilliant to, than to accept all this stuff. What do, you, what do you want us to say? We believe that this book is God's spoken word to his people and that it is truth and then it says that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Messiah who comes to take away the sin of the world. And yes, we know that there is still problem and pain in this world, but it's not going to last. We think it is the most loving, compassionate thing that we can do to tell you what we believe and ask that God and pray that God would soften your heart and do for you what he's done for us. And so we, and we invite you to believe. Secondly, this world isn't all there is. Sometimes, like the servants in verse 27, we get caught up in the environment and the atmosphere, and we think, oh man, we just got to make this world a little bit better place. Just leave it better than we found it, and that'll be enough. No. We do want to make this world a better place and leave it better than we found it, but that's not the ultimate aim. There are worse things than death, and there are better things than human flourishing. And we want to be about those better and best things. All that is presently sad and broken is in the process of coming untrue, but it's not there yet. We get to be agents of that light and hope and joy and set our expectations to that of our King and Savior. We will have trouble in this world. Expect it. Respond with joy because there is greater and more and bigger things as yet to come. All of those things that are painful will ultimately be burned up and obliterated in the fire. Not yet, and so we wait well. Number three, we have a real enemy. He is divisive, he is deceptive, and he never rests. So much of what we believe today is, oh, it's just, you know, us a little bit off course. No, there is an actual opposition. There are two kingdoms, and he energizes the dark kingdom. Now, should we focus on that so much? No, but we need to be aware that there is an enemy that 1 Peter 5, 8 says prowls around like a roaring lion waiting on those to devour. We're not just, oh, experiencing sort of the next evolutionary march of human, of human beings as a species. No, there is an enemy who is opposed to the kingdom of Christ. Know that. Know that we will receive resistance in spades. And so when we trip and fall, huh, why is everything so hard? Oh, that's right, because I am good seed. And I am being opposed. I am receiving resistance. That does not mean that there is a devil behind every bush. Sometimes you're just clumsy, all right? You just fell down. That's okay. There's hope for you too. Fourth point, 
even though we have a real enemy, Jesus gets it done. He moves in ways we don't understand, we don't expect. The great joke of the kingdom is that he advances and proclaims his word through long lines of losers like me. And yet, in spite of the vessel, the message sounds forth and does not return void. Jesus gets it done. Whether it's a mustard seed that we can't imagine how it's going to turn into something awesome, or whether it's a little bit of leaven in the dough that's going to transform an entire community, we don't see it, but Jesus gets it done. Oh, wait a minute, boys. Let me tell you, he says. It's future history. I win this deal. I promise you can have hope. Yes, things are hard. It's not the end of the story. Elongate and expand your perspective. Jesus gets it done. It happens in the church when someone says, oh, I get it. He's not coming to build me a kingdom. I am invited by hearing his message to be a part of his. And I lay down and I submit and I yield my kingdom expectation to his. And I say, your will be done. Your, your kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven. In my life, the kingdom of God expands. It happens when a believer who's been in church perhaps all of his or her life, but has still been trying to earn and accomplish and achieve God's favor, finally goes, wait a minute. He's already done it all? It is finished? You mean I can actually experience love and joy and peace and faith and hope, Christian liberty, and love this life? Yeah, that's right. The kingdom of God advances forward in that individual soul. These 11 doubting disciples obediently carried forth the gospel from Galilee, and the world is changed. And this little fledgling thing in the ancient Near East from 2,000 years ago has now grown into a tree, if you will, that has literally nourished and shaded billions of people. And there are millions and millions of more for whom the tree has not yet grown. And so we will continue to be diligent in talking about the grace and the glory of God here and there and everywhere, as you saw our missions video earlier this morning. We will continue to be a part because Jesus sums it all up. In John chapter 16, verse 33, he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I win. It's future history. Oh, I know. I'm going to go to the cross. I win. I'm going to ascend. I win. I will turn and come back again. I win. And you are going to be found in me. You need not fear. You can have hope. See, Jesus is telling us in these three parables that there is judgment for everybody. Those who reject his kingdom, who are a part of the kingdom of darkness, will be judged at the end of the age. But for all of those who are the seeds of the kingdom, uh, and the surprise twist of all, they too have already been judged. Don't you see? The sower of the seed, the master of the field, the owner of the earth, himself steps into and fills the furnace, receiving the full wrath of God. So that we never have to. We just get to go to the barn. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a surprise twist. The sower of the seed, he himself gets harvested for the sake of the seed so that we are preserved. So if you're here this morning, you don't know this Jesus. It's just a bunch of stories to you. I invite you to just for a moment pause. I double dog dare you to ask God if it's true that he sent his son to save you. We know the answer. We pray that you will talk with someone about that. They're not gonna try to argue into the kingdom. They're going to be a witness and tell you their story. 
Talk to a staff member, one of our elders, deacons, a friend, a family member, someone that you know and love and trust. For the rest of us, I just want to remind you, life's going to be hard. But what if all of these people who are the seeds of the kingdom, sons and daughters of the king, we're not characterized by frustration with the political climate of our world. We're not frustrated by this or that or the other, but looked forward expectantly and were characterized as such. Because it's future history. The sower will return. Not only do we have this king who cares for us, this champion who has died for us, this brother in Jesus who is proud of us, <laughs> but he's also made available to us all these other brothers and sisters all of these other siblings, these people that we will never not know for all eternity. He has chosen for us a family. And you don't get to choose your family any more than the seed chooses which seed that's going to fall next to. But if you're not engaged somehow in authentic Christian community, life on life, small togetherness, we want as strongly as possibly we can to invite you, to encourage you, to exhort you to do that. Tyler's already talked about it with Caitlin that on the second floor, this is for people who are not yet involved in a life group or a Bible study or a women's group or men's group. We want you to be involved. Go downstairs, have some chicken, have some water, have some conversation. Do not leave this place going, eh, I think I'd rather just come and hear a sermon and leave. That ain't church. I pray that we will continue to be sown as good seed and that the kingdom of God will be visible to this world in and through us. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word, the message of the kingdom. We thank you for these that have been sown as sons and daughters of your kingdom, for your mysterious, silent working, that you're going to get it done. This is your world, and we eagerly expect the more that is yet to come. And in the meantime, would you give us wisdom to resist the resistance that the enemy brings against us? Give us the wisdom to trust that you win. You have one. Father, would you give us the courage and the boldness to simply walk across the room and down a flight of stairs and to get into community with somebody else? Would you relieve and remove all of the awkwardness and all of the tension? Would you remind us that in this world we will have trouble, but you have overcome the world? Father, we pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again so much for being with us. We do invite you to join us downstairs if you're not yet in a group. If you are in a group, uh, don't go eat our chicken. But stand up. Let's have a word of benediction. We'll be dismissed. The Lord Jesus said, you will know, they will know you are my followers by how you love one another. May we love our God and love one another. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.